music laws fighting for justice radio. Don't underestimate the Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me Fighting for Justice Radio analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make them an offer again with you. Now it's time for Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for listening. I really appreciate it. We have a fantastic show for you today. And remember to check out our website at kuziklaw.com. That's K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. And let your friends know that they can listen to the show, too, uh, either on iTunes or blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. This week, we're going to have five stories. And here on Kuziklaw's Fighting for Justice Radio... With Reed Brightman, Robert Ryan, and Mark Leonardo, we analyze hot civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and legal current events. We've got five very interesting stories today, and if we have time after the stories, we'll do Reed's rant and wrap it up from there. Again, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. The first, attorney, the first story is attorney Mark Leonardo's story. This is very interesting. Mark, we got a family suing Apple over... The use of FaceTime by a by the other driver in a car accident. Tell us about this story. Yes, Reed. Uh, at the time of the accident, the Modisset family of four they were stopped in traffic because of police activity on the I-35 freeway just north of Dallas, and uh, all the passengers were wearing seatbelts. And the five-year-old, their five-year-old daughter, was in her booster seat at the time of the crash. Now Garrett Wilhelm was driving his Toyota 4Runner. And he was allegedly traveling at full highway speed, and he rear-ended the Modisette family car. Um, the impact caused their Toyota Camry to be propelled forward, rotate, and finally come to rest facing ongoing traffic. And then the, toy- the uh, Toyota 4Runner ran over the front of their car and, and virtually destroyed the car. Major damage to the entire vehicle, but in particular, the vehicle's driver's side sustained extreme damage. And um, rescue workers had to labor extensively to, to extract the five-year-old daughter and, and her father, while the wife and the other daughter had to look on in horror as the, uh, as the emergency crew tried to get them out of the mangled vehicle. So the five-year-old, her name was Mariah Matasset, she was airlifted from the scene, but she later died from her injuries. Um, so in addition to the death of their daughter, both the father, James Matasset, and the wife, Bethany, they were injured in the crash in fact, Mr. Matisset sustained critical injuries, but he did survive. So, <clears throat> reportedly, the driver told the police that he was on FaceTime at the time of the collision, and officers found that the FaceTime was live when they arrived at the crash site on his phone. Um, and for those of you who don't, don't have Apple iPhones, FaceTime is the ability to make a phone call with another uh, person that has an Apple phone, and you can have a video of each, each caller on your phone. Um, so, a few weeks ago, about December 23rd, the Matissettes filed a lawsuit for personal injury, wrongful death, and a survival action up in Santa Clara, California. Uh, curiously, they did not sue Mr. Wilhelm, 
but only Apple. I found that very interesting. Isn't they already got his insurance party? policy. They already must have. They must have already collected his insurance. Yeah, that, that makes sense, Robert. Okay. okay. Um, but they're, they're obviously going after the deep pocket here. Um, the complaint brings uh, causes of action for general negligence, gross negligence, product liability, strict liability, and also loss of consortium. Um, the complaint states that Wilhelm was distracted while he using the FaceTime application on his Apple iPhone 6 Plus while he was driving. And the lawsuit, lawsuit urges that Apple should install features that automatically disable the chatting video feature if a driver is driving because they have the access to that technology, uh, but they don't use it. Um, the parents claim that the California company's wrongful failure to install and implement the safer alternative design for which it sought a patent back in 2008, which, by the way, was later issued by the United States Patent Office in uh, April 2014. But Apple has had that patent since then to lock out the ability of drivers to utilize FaceTime on their phones uh, when a vehicle is actually moving, but they've chosen not to use that that uh, Well, that just because a, pat, a patent is issued doesn't mean that the technology actually exists. You can patent all sorts of ideas, even if you don't have the ability to bring them to fruition. And it's my understanding that Apple patented this idea, but abandoned it because there was no way to differentiate between people who were just driving in a vehicle and the ones who are actually operating the vehicle. And so therefore, Apple wasn't able to, you know, install any type of feature that would preclude its use in an automobile because it would shut down all the phones in the automobile. And I have another problem with this story. I mean, just because Apple had to happen to make the product that distracted the driver, we can now sue the maker of that product. I mean, I was in a Starbucks this morning and they gave me a hot cup of coffee in a drive-in window, no less. Practically, I guess apparently well aware I was going to be drinking that coffee while I was driving. And I recall that I was trying to fish that little plastic green stick out of the aperture to drink it through, and I had my head down and I almost rear-ended a car in front of me. If I had, does the injured person I injured now have the ability to sue Starbucks because they provided the means by which I distracted myself? Exactly. You know, there's there's been some cases in the past on, um, you know, the famous cases on this subject are the cases against gun manufacturers where uh, the victims of of some crime uh, by gunshots sues the manufacturer saying, hey, your gun was used in this. But the argument there was more, you know, you made a gun that's perfect for shooting people. It's got no other use. You're not going to take a snub-nosed 38 special and go hunt a deer with it or something. And you know people are going to use it to commit crimes, and so you should be liable. And even then, they had a really difficult time holding the manufacturer liable. Here, I don't see any way you could hold Apple liable because FaceTime has fabulous uses. Uh, and if somebody is going to be stupid enough, in fact, criminal enough to use FaceTime while driving, that's an intervening cause that, that Apple shouldn't be responsible for. And isn't it true, Mark, didn't, didn't they charge this guy with uh, vehicular manslaughter or something like that? Yeah, he's been indicted uh, manslaughter charges uh, by grand jury in Texas you know, back in August. Of you know what else I noticed riding in this morning? I, I noticed a woman next to me putting on makeup. Uh, Right, putting on eyeliner while she was traveling about 75 miles an hour in the fast lane right next to me. And I'm thinking, well, if she uh, loses control of her vehicle because she's more intent on getting the eyeliner on, does that mean the injured person can sue Maybelline? 
I mean, exactly. there are all sorts of things that distract people while they're driving, right? And how is talking right. to somebody on FaceTime any different than being distracted by a person sitting next to you in the passenger seat and having a conversation with them? Right. I well, guess we could sue them too. Yeah. Here's the argument they're yeah. making. I, I don't agree with it, but here's the argument. They're saying that Apple's failure to warn users that the product was likely to be dangerous when used or misused in a reasonably foreseeable <laughs> manner and or instructed the safe usage of this <laughs> you, similar application. Right. Oh, come on. Apple so now, phone, nobody, nobody has heard yet that, that using a cell phone while driving is a cause of exactly. distraction and could lead to an accident? That's, that's a new one on people? We have to put that right. in fine print on the bottom of the cell phone, that if you try to operate that cell phone while you're driving a car, then, oh, gee, you might cause an accident that could harm somebody? I think yeah, in those terms... They're not going to be able to show that Apple had a duty to protect the driver of a different vehicle. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't think they're going to get that. Far. I mean, in California, um, it's already illegal to use FaceTime while you're operating a vehicle because that would require a hand, right. that would require using holding the device in your hand. You know, right? You know, the the, the I think this is a frivolous suit that's going to go away. Um, you know, I, I applaud the personal injury lawyer who, who is trying to be creative and do something for this family that got completely devastated. Um, but you want to know what I think the biggest story, the, the, the biggest moral of this story is, besides don't friggin' use FaceTime or anything when you're driving a car. You need to pay attention to the road. But the biggest mistake I see is um, the, the guy who was using FaceTime um, – what was his name? I can't remember. Um, Wilhelm. What was his name? Wilhelm. 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 That guy, he made two mistakes. Okay? The first mistake was using FaceTime. But the second mistake was opening his mouth. And as a lawyer, we tell our clients and we tell everybody, don't open your mouth right at the beginning of this show. I love that little quote. It says, you have the right to remain silent. That means shut up. Now, this guy, he didn't need to volunteer that he was using FaceTime. He didn't need to tell the police that. He didn't need to tell the other driver that. And if anybody has any concern, any thought about talking uh, to police or anybody in a situation like that or any kind of situation where they're being interviewed with the police, go to YouTube and search up Don't Talk to Police. Harvard Law, and you will get a fabulous 48-minute lecture by a Harvard Law professor and his third-year law student who, before going to law school, was a homicide detective for 20 years. And they give this great presentation on why you never answer questions, you never talk to the police when they're asking you these questions, because you can get yourself in trouble. And in this case, I don't think they... They, they might not have had the evidence if he didn't admit that he was using FaceTime. Uh, maybe they would have looked at his phone records. Maybe there's some way to figure out, but um, they might not have known to even look. And now he's facing manslaughter charges. He's looking at up to 20 years in jail because he opened his mouth. So on that note, we'll move on to the next interesting story. Robert Ryan has an interesting story about another lawsuit, yet again, against Tesla. And I find what's interesting in this case is that Tesla's argument is this guy is just – he stomped on the accelerator and drove into his own house. 
and he's suing us for it and making a false allegation, and we're not going to put up with it. And they're claiming that the, the driver, uh, the car owner, uh, is some celebrity in Korea and basically tried to extort money, a settlement out of, out of Tesla by threatening to give them bad publicity. Uh, I find that very interesting, and I hope they stand, stand up for their, you know, stick to their guns uh, if that's the case. Um, what do you know about it, Robert? Okay, so what happened was last September, a, a guy named Ji Chang Sun, who apparently is a singer and a songwriter and somewhat of a B-list kind of TV movie star from Korea in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, the allegation he was pulling into his driveway in his, in his Tesla, and the garage door opened up, and then the car inexplicably and without his intent uh, accelerated actually through the garage wall came to rest in his living room and anybody who's interested in this story can google uh, Mr. Sun and his and his story and you can see the pictures of the Tesla actually in his living room and the allegation in the lawsuit against Tesla is that this was unintended acceleration which represents a defect in the vehicle now we've we've been following throughout the years some other unintended acceleration lawsuits uh, Toyota had a hell of a time with unintended unintended acceleration lawsuits involving Lexus models uh, that resulted in the deaths of quite a few people, a very expensive recall, and literally hundreds of millions of dollars in personal injury settlements. Um, mm. Apparently, there are seven other unintended acceleration complaints uh, on file with the National Highway Traffic Safety uh, Institute, or NHTSA, and that provides the basis for Mr. Sun's lawsuit. Tesla has, uh, you just mentioned, Reed, is pushing back hard against this. You know, we've been following the stories of the autopilot crashes, where people have been using autopilot features on Teslas and have been uh, involved in accidents. Um, and the allegation is that the autopilot, uh, you know, lulled them into a false sense that they didn't have to actually even watch where the car was going or have their hands on the steering wheel. Here, Tesla is pushing back, saying that, in fact, if autopilot had been engaged, it can uh, differentiate between intended and unintended acceleration, and that their own uh, test data, because all of these cars have these, these kind of sophisticated software systems that right. report uh, all of this information directly back to Tesla. Tesla doesn't even have to oh. examine the vehicle. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. The way that. Tesla knows all about this is not because they examined the vehicle, but because they downloaded all of the information uh, remotely from the Tesla that was involved nice. in the crash. And according to them, they say that Mr. Son essentially just floored the vehicle for un un unknown reasons and plowed the thing into the back wall of his garage and, and, and through and into his living room. And yes, as you indicated, Reed, there's also the, the allegation by Tesla, who was pushing back really hard on this, that Mr. Son apparently uh, essentially attempted to extort them, uh, threatening to damage their reputation in Korea because he's kind of a celebrity there and he's kind of a star. And he was going to go public in Korea talking about how the Tesla was defective and he was going to do everything he could to damage their reputation. And apparently when Tesla didn't knuckle under, well, this is Tesla's version, uh, instead decided to file this lawsuit in California for which he seeks class action status. Um, so the tables are somewhat turned here where Tesla is alleging that the autopilot feature would have provided a defense to this particular incident and where its software uploads are showing that, in fact, the accident did not occur as the motorist is claiming. Right. Now, I find it interesting that he's trying to do this on a class action basis. I mean, isn't I, – I thought with a class action, you, you have a, a, 
a similar set of circumstances, and you're, what you're trying to do is efficiently resolve the disputes of a group of people, a class, where there's similar facts and circumstances, and you don't have to have a mini-trial for each plaintiff, each person in the, in the named class. But here, the facts of every un- so-called unintended acceleration are going to be different. There's going to be, what were you doing? Uh, did you hit the gas pedal or not? What did the download to Tesla say? Why are they doing this as a class action? Well, that, that's a very interesting question, and that's a good observation. I mean, those, the, tes- the Toyota unintended acceleration lawsuits were certified as, as a class action, and because they, they involved literally thousands of vehicles that had this alleged defect. Here, Nitzer is reporting there's been seven other complaints um, so I don't know what kind of class action he's intending if he's got eight folks. You know, I mean that's typically not the kind of uh, the kind of uh, class that is certified for for this type of lawsuit. It could have something to do with the bad blood that apparently has developed between Mr. Song and Tesla. I mean, to make it a class action raises the stakes significantly for Tesla in this lawsuit by way of attorney's fees, by way of potential damages, and by way of potential reme- remedial. Uh, uh, action that it may take if indeed it's established uh, that there was some defect in the vehicle that caused this unintended acceleration. So, you know, there's a lot of steps to try to get a, a case certified as a class action. And if Mr. Sohn only can point to seven other motorists who had similar complaints, I think that he has kind of an uphill climb on that score as well. Yeah, I'm thinking he will too. I think the biggest thing, you know, the truth will set you free, and if their software says that he, he that the acceleration pedal moved to 100% as, as it says in the story, you know, I don't know how you get around that uh, unless somehow, you know, Sun would have to show that in an unintended acceleration, the pedal itself actually moves without touching it, and I don't think that's the case. Uh, interesting to see how that one comes along. Poor Tesla, though. They keep getting sued. Um, but that's the price of bringing forth a, a disruptive technology like that. Um, but I have a feeling in you know, some number of years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years at some point, we're going to see a lot of cars like the Jetsons where you just get in, type in your digits, your coordinates, and the car takes you there. I actually saw one advertised, very interesting car. I'm interested in it. Uh, I think it's called the TFX by Terrafugia. It won't be released for 8 to 12 years, but it's a cross between a car and a helicopter. And it drives on the road. It's street legal. You park it in a single car garage and everything. But you can push a button, and it converts itself into a helicopter, and it takes off. And all you do is you type in where you want it to go, the exact GPS coordinates of your landing site. And you hit the button, and you, you you take your hands off and that's it. You have nothing to do with it anymore. The, the, they had that. They had that exact vehicle on the Jetsons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, don't you remember? He I had this thing. He used to, to press a button and the and the and then the, the, the cop the, the chopper blades would flip out of the top and then he'd go zipping off. So it was I only a matter it. of time. Yeah. I want that car. And if they're taking <laughs> some company out of Boston, and you know they're taking way too long to develop it. Uh, but I, you know, I find that very interesting, and I like the idea that, you know, it's run by a computer. There's, it, it's going to reduce human error. I think that you will have certain, just like in the Tesla and everything else, you're going to have certain, you know, 
malfunctions and there will be accidents, but I have a feeling there will be a lot fewer uh, accidents and fatalities with computer-driven cars than human-driven cars because we do stupid things like texting and using Facebook or FaceTime. Um, all right. You are listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Yeah, if you just joined us, welcome. We will move on to our next story. Next story is with Mark Leonardo. This is about a another baby powder wrongful death lawsuit against Johnson and Johnson. Uh, this uh, the plaintiff's mother developed ovarian cancer, or, and uh, after using the baby powder for 50 years, what happened? Right, Reed, many women um, used Johnson Johnson's baby power products for feminine hygiene. And in this case, uh, Anne Underwood, like thousands of other women, developed ovarian cancer. Her daughter, Amy Darnold, believes that her mother's cancer was a direct result of the baby powder use. Miss um, Underwood, as you said, she used this powder for about 50 years in her groin area. And in November 2014, she was diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer, and uh, almost two years later, she passed away this past year in 2016. So her daughter believes her mother's battle with cancer and death could have been prevented had Johnson & Johnson, which I'll just refer to as J&J, provided the appropriate warnings to consumers that its products could cause ovarian cancer. So let me give you a little background here on what this is all about. Um, J&J's baby powder uses talc in its product. Talc is a naturally occurring mineral compound composed of um, mostly magnesium, oxygen, and silicone. And talc has a natural moisture-absorbing property. So when it's ground into powder, it can be used to keep the skin dry and prevent rashes. Now, although talc has been an ingredient in baby powder for over 100 years, studies dating as far back as 1971 found a link between the talc uh, using in baby powder, product, baby powder products and the development of ovarian cancer when used around the groin area. By the 1990s, J&J became increasingly concerned about the alleged link between the talk and its products and ovarian cancer, and they hired an independent consultant to investigate the link. And the consultant advised the company to stop using talk in its baby powder or to provide a warning to consumers. Amazingly, or should I say disturbingly, J&J, they ignored this advice. They continued to use talk in their baby powder. Um, as another sign that the almighty dollar is more important than the safety of its customers, uh, J&J could have used another ingredient that is just as effective. A popular mm. alternative is, is to talk is a cornstarch-based baby powder, which is just as effective at, at absorbing moisture, and it does not cause cancer. Now, actually, Johnson & Johnson even manufactures a cornstarch-based baby powder, but its talk-based baby powder is more popular. It's its top-performing baby powder, so... That's probably why they're not. Uh, they'd rather just fight the lawsuits. It probably makes more money for them. Um, now, this isn't the first lawsuit against them. They've had uh, oh, many, many lawsuits. But last year, the biggest one, a jury in St. Louis awarded a family of a Missouri woman $72 million. Um, it, was a, it was a court battle carried on by the, uh, the son of the mom who passed away. And the jury found that uh, J&J liable for the ovarian cancer um, which she claimed in the lawsuit was a result of using, you know, the company's baby powder and shower-to-shower shower powder, um, both of which contained the talcum powder, according to the court documents. And so in that case, the jury gave uh, $10 million for compensatory damages and $62 million for punitive damages. 
And I said, there's a lot of suits. There's, there's 1,200 lawsuits that are pending against Johnson & Johnson for uh, baby powder products right now. Um, so now that's so a there, mass tort, right? That's a mass tort claim, what, so each lawsuit is separate, right? There's, it is not a class action. It's not a class action. You know, there's something else going on here with Johnson & Johnson I was when I was uh, following this story. Apparently, you know, they they actively marketed this to adult women, and the the pitch was that they should sprinkle it in their underwear in order to ensure something that Johnson and Johnson marketed as quote personal freshness end quote. And it's really sort of unfortunate that women have been subjected to like this kind of I don't know like war against their bodily functions, you know. And like somehow women have to like sprinkle and spray and perfume and do the, all of these other things, all in the name of some like kind of obscure goal called freshness. And here's Johnson and Johnson manipulating women's minds in this way and using a product which it knows is dangerous when applied, especially in the groin area. Right? It's my understanding that this stuff actually becomes absorbed through the vagina, and that's how it leads to the tumors in, in the in the ovaries that result in ovarian cancer. And despite this knowledge, they're perpetuating this kind of distorted viewpoint of femininity and female, uh, you know, bodily functions in a way that requires they be scrubbed clean and free of any odor or anything that could possibly, like, be found offensive by somebody and, like, manipulate these women's minds in a way that actually results in them causing them to do themselves harm, you know, and that seems that was a very sad, it's a very sad angle to this whole story that that really troubled me when I read it. Well, yeah, there's a lot of stuff deal. like that where where companies take actions to to manipulate people into buying their products um, for for different reasons. You know, the cigarette companies used to hire celebrities and the Marlboro Man and everything, and basically put out the message that you know, guys, you're going to look cool. And you're going to get more women, and you're and you're going to be, you know, better looking and attractive if you smoke our cigarette, our brand of cigarettes. Um, you know, the, you know, a, a Coca-Cola company they used to use cocaine in their Coca-Cola product. That's what's where the name came from. And I think there was another product. Can't remember, but there was some product back in the early 1900s that used heroin, which is incredibly addictive. And the companies put those things in, like in cigarettes, the companies put certain chemicals in there just to foster addiction. Um, it's 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 what you, it's exactly what you said, Ryan, uh, Robert. It's the uh, it's the almighty dollar controlling these decisions of of big companies that just look at their bottom lines. Yeah, well, essentially you, like creating a, creating a market out of something that doesn't even exist, right? All in the goal of like something called personal freshness that was something that only women would fall for, right? And in 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 and in the process, you know, using this harmful product that like essentially was killing them slowly. I mean, it just seems to me the bo- the most yeah. I mean, the most mendacious kind of corporate conduct. It's just it's just yeah, horrifying. It, it, but in, in, this, in this case, Robert, the nail in the coffin for Johnson Johnson was an internal memo from right. 1997 from a medical consultant that they had hired that suggested a link between talcum powder and ovarian cancer. In the memo, he wrote that anyone who denied the risk between hygienic talc powder and ovarian cancer would be denying the obvious in the face of all the evidence to the contrary. So that's what, what did them in in that case where they got the seven. That sounds like the memo that they found in the Pinto case. Remember when they had the right, exploding exactly. gas tanks? 
They had the right, exploding yeah. gas tanks, and apparently they had an engineer who had who had said, "Listen, you've got to put this thing in front of the axle, not behind it, because otherwise they're going to blow up." And then they had some cost consultant figure out that if uh, if they changed it, it was going to cost them X amount of dollars, but fighting the lawsuits that were sure to ensue would cost them Y amount of dollars. And since Y was less than X, quote, and I'm quoting, "Let them burn," mm-hmm. end quote. <laughs> oh my and that God. Was, uh, that that was what resulted in that that record uh, multi-million dollar at the time uh, punitive damage award against Ford in the Pinto cases. It sounds like something similar uh, in this particular yeah. instance. Hmm. Mark, do you know that. how many uh, cases there are of of women? I, you said there's 1,200 cases pending, but is there any report out there about of any kind of estimate of how many women have actually contracted ovarian cancer uh, from talc? Well. They've, they've done some studies. There was a 2010 study that looked at uh, 200,000 women, and there were 721 cases of ovarian cancer out of 200,000. So I'm not sure what, but the percentage is a very small percentage. Um, and then uh, there was another study that they had like about 12,000 women. And both of these studies, they basically said they really couldn't pin it down that the talc powder was the cause of the ovarian cancer because there were so many other variables. That's kind of what Johnson Johnson's relying on, these big studies and that the U.S. Food Drug Administration and the National Cancer Institute, none of them have concluded that this product, this talk, is, a, is the cause of these ovarian cancer cases. So that's what they're fighting. That's their defense. But obviously yeah, they've yeah, lost a few of these. They're going to argue proximate cause, and that is an issue because if somebody develops ovarian cancer, uh, all you have, you know, these plaintiffs, their evidence that it was caused by baby powder is going to be nothing more than their testimony. Yeah, we used baby powder for a long time, uh, over X amount of years. Um, they're probably not going to have receipts for buying baby powder going back 50 years. Um, and, you know, there's many causes of ovarian cancer, and that, that's going to be what makes it hard for these plaintiffs. That's the challenge. But as Johnson & Johnson is learning, um, you know, some of these cases, the jury, it's, it's, it could go either way, and some juries are going to find in favor of the plaintiff. And if Johnson & Johnson keeps getting hit with, you know, multi-$10 million-plus judgments, at some point that little bean counter in the back office is going to say, hey, maybe Y is bigger than X. Maybe we should stop selling talc baby powder and use cornstarch baby powder. Um, although, yeah, well, you know, I don't know. There might be some disadvantages to cornstarch. Maybe there's some problem with yeah. that. I don't know. No, they, well, they they use both, but why they decided to use the the talk is you know predominantly I, I don't know. It's costing them a lot of money and it's killing people, so they should change. Yeah, I hope they do. That you know that's if they do, you got to give a pat on the back to all the personal injury lawyers out there that are bringing these cases. They're taking the risk. They're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars of attorney time and expert costs. Uh, it, and litigation expenses to bring these cases against companies like Johnson and Johnson to get them to change. It's not only about getting their clients compensated, which, which is of course extremely important, but it's also about getting these companies to change their ways because you don't want them making that decision in the back room. Hey, it's going to cost less to pay out the few people we kill uh, than to change our corporate practices. 
So let's not for, forget to send our thanks to those guys out there. All right. You are listening to Acoustic Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. We will move on to our next case. Uh, interesting story with uh, Robert Ryan. The Alabama Supreme Court allows a wrongful death lawsuit after a miscarriage. Um, very interesting case. Tell us about it, Robert. Well, this involves a, a young woman, Kimberly Stennett, in Alabama, who was diagnosed uh, as being pregnant, um, maybe five to six weeks out. Um, a couple of days later, she began developing some cramping and fever, and so she called into her doctor. She got a different doctor who was covering his calls, and uh, that doctor was concerned because of this uh Kimberly Stinnett's uh, history that perhaps this was an ectopic pregnancy. That's a pregnancy where the where the fertilized egg does not rest on the walls of the uterus, but instead could come become lodged in the ovarian or fallopian tubes. Um, and so, because she was fearful of that, she did a, a, a procedure designed to try to uh, terminate or end the pregnancy, and followed that up later with the administration of drugs. Ultimately, the operative report disclosed that it was not an ectopic pregnancy, that it was a regular, ordinary pregnancy. Um, And so Kimberly Stinnett filed a lawsuit uh, for medical malpractice against that doctor, um, alleging that the care fell below the standard of care, and also alleging a cause of action under Alabama's wrongful death statute. Now, let me tell you a little bit about wrongful death statutes. Everybody knows it's a crime to kill somebody, and the state can charge you criminally and after a trial incarcerate you or bring other penalties to bear. Um, wrongful death statutes are sort of a civil alternative. Uh, the most Probably the most famous wrongful death case we we're aware of is the one that was brought okay. by the family of uh, of O.J. Simpson's, Simpson's victims, uh, Nicole Brown Simpson, and uh, that young fellow whose name escapes me right now, um, alleging Ronald that he had something? caused. I'm sorry, Ronald Goldman. Ronald, Ronald Goldman. Goldman, yes, Ronald Goldman. Uh, and uh, they had that huge uh, 32 million dollar verdict against O.J. Simpson as a result of him being responsible for their death. Well, apparently in Alabama, um, there has been a requirement that for wrongful death claims arising from the death of an unborn fetus, the fetus had to be viable. And uh, in this particular case, the Alabama Supreme Court struck down that requirement so that now it's the same as for the crime of murder. And let me just give you a little bit of reference here. Obviously, in every state, if you kill an unborn child, you could be charged with a homicide. The homicide statutes in all 50 states reach that particular situation, but not the same number of states allow a wrongful death lawsuit, meaning a lawsuit for civil liability where damages could be awarded unless that fetus who was killed as a result of that wrongful act was viable at the time of death. Only six states, in fact, in this country allow a wrongful death lawsuit for the death of a fetus, regardless of whether the fetus was viable outside of the womb. And now Alabama has become the seventh with this particular decision. This is really interesting. I want to point out the, the subtle difference here. In terms of money, the, the plaintiff, the mother, is she's going to be suing for malpractice and wrongful death. In the malpractice case, to me, it seems like that would be pretty easy to show. They should have gotten an X-ray or ultrasound or something to show to, to confirm that the pregnancy was in the fallopian tube instead of a normal, regular pregnancy, and they didn't. Or 
maybe they should have waited until they could have seen for sure and confirmed it because it was she found this out only two days after her pregnancy. Uh, maybe there's some factors there, but if she succeeds and proves her case under the malpractice case, she will get a certain amount of damages. The wrongful death case, however, the plaintiff there is really – I mean it's, it's the mom, but it's the, the victim there is the child, right? It's the wrongful death of the child. That's correct. And what would that child have earned during that, you know, the life of that child and, and what, what pain and suffering – you know, the, the the child obviously didn't didn't suffer any pain and suffering. But what pain and suffering did the mother uh, uh, suffer? You know, she lost her child, and and she found out that this could have been a pregnancy that she could have carried. We don't know. She could have been trying to get pregnant for ten years. Could you imagine? You know, she finally gets pregnant with a good pregnancy that'll last, and then they kill the baby. It's a nightmare. So it's really two different cases and two different analysis on what the damages are going to be, right? Well, actually, it's funny you should raise that point because her medical malpractice case did go to trial. The judge granted summary wow. judgment on the wrongful death claim, and that was what the subject of this appeal was that went to the Supreme Court. The medical malpractice part of the case actually went to a jury trial, and the doctor prevailed. There was a defense verdict finding oh. that there had not been a sufficient showing that it was the doctor's conduct that had resulted in the termination of the pregnancy. Um, so without the wrongful death claim, Kimberly Stinnett had no right of recovery against this doctor whatsoever. And there's also another interesting intersection here societal, mm. societally that we're looking at, which is that, you know, there's a lot of controversy obviously over abortion rights in this country. And there are many people who believe quite vehemently that abortion under almost all circumstances should be prohibited as essentially resulting in the killing of a human being, right? And then there's another right. whole school of thought and another whole you know, movement that believes that any interference with a woman's choice to carry a pregnancy to term is some unreasonable governmental intrusion and shouldn't be allowed. It's, it's interesting because in Alabama, the standard on viability as being the threshold for a wrongful death lawsuit arising from the death of a fetus was an outgrowth of the Roe v. Wade decision, whereby the uh, United States Supreme Court essentially legalized abortion up until, I believe, the second trimester. And there was a huge analysis in Roe v. Wade concerning whether the fetus was viable outside of the womb has at that point justifying governmental intervention to protect it from abortion or to protect it from termination. And that idea of viability of the fetus is what crept into many states' wrongful death laws. And with, the, with this particular decision, the Alabama Supreme Court has moved away from that line of reasoning, and they decided that they want to make the wrongful death statute in Alabama congruent or consistent with the murder or homicide statute so that if somebody, a third person, could have killed this fetus and then be charged with homicide, if some other actor wrongfully caused the death of that fetus, that person should be held liable as well under the civil standard because it shouldn't be any different than the homicide or criminal standard. And since that didn't depend on viability outside of the womb in order for the charge to be viable, then it's an unfair and also an unequal application of the law to say that viability outside of the womb is a prerequisite to civil liability for wrongful death. That's very interesting. It's, very, it's subtle, subtle nuances in the law there. Um, I find there must be something that we don't know about. If the if the jury found in favor of the doctor, um, there must have been some facts that showed that the doctor's 
care did not fall below the standard of care. Doctors are allowed to make mistakes. That doesn't mean it's malpractice or, uh, uh, yeah, uh, medical malpractice. It's, it's where they, they make a mistake that, that the, the average reasonable doctor exercising reasonable care in that community, the standard of that community, wouldn't have done. So here, maybe there's some factor that we didn't know. Like, for example, it was urgent, you know, that if they didn't, if they waited any longer, that the, uh, that allowing the fetus to grow in the fallopian tube could harm the mother in some way, either, you know, cause her to bleed out or cause well, her to be injured. Well, that's an excellent point. In fact, in, in fact Kim, Kimberly, actually, we do know because we had the trial of the MedMal case. And in that particular case, it was shown that Kimberly Stinnett had had two previous miscarriages and had a previous ecto, ecto, ectopic pregnancy that had resulted in, in the removal of one of her fallopian tubes. And if her remaining ah. fallopian tube had become damaged as a result of an ectopic pregnancy and necessitated removal, she would then have been rendered infertile. And so the doctor asserted this as a defense, ah. saying that it was necessary to move quickly to terminate any threatened ectopic pre- pregnancy because otherwise her ability to conceive in the future would have been eliminated. Right, and it's possible that she signed a consent. She could have signed a consent that said, I recognize that I'm taking a chance. It could be a normal pregnancy, but I'm instructing you to uh, abort this pregnancy because I don't want to take the risk that I'll, I'll become infertile. Yeah. You know, so something was going there. But my question is, if, they, if, if a jury has found that the doctor wasn't negligent, negligence is a much lower standard than criminally liable or, or wrongful death, isn't it? How, how would they – isn't this issue already done? How would they – Well, that, that's a good question that because they, were, that, they, they, did, they argued something called collateral estoppel, which is saying that hey, right. since he had already been determined that her conduct hadn't fallen below the standard of care, then the elimination of the wrongful death claim um, didn't – A, didn't have anything to do with what has already been decided, and what has already been decided would bar that as well. The right. Alabama Supreme Court said no. They didn't want to decide the decision based on make the decision based on collateral estoppel, and because they couldn't figure out what the removal of the wrongful death case had on the jury's deliberations, because the jury was instructed not to consider the demise of the fetus in connection with determining whether or not malpractice had occurred. And so the Alabama Supreme Court said that under those circumstances, because it, the record below was unclear as to what weight this may have. Uh, been given by the jury in its determination and whether it actually sort of altered or distorted their deliberations on the medical malpractice claim, decided instead that the entire case now needs to be retried with the reinstitution of the wrongful death claim. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So they're going to, so, so they threw out the whole thing and they're going to yes, try the malpractice case too? That's right. Oh, very interesting. Second bite of the apple. Well, yeah. that'll be interesting to see what happens with that case. Let's move on to our last story. You're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio, and our last story is about a Cali- – this is, this is an interesting story. This one pisses me off. California man is fighting DUI charges for driving under the influence of, get this, caffeine. Caffeine. Now, yeah, this-, the, 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 this, is, this is a crazy story, and the thing that gets me is, to me – this seems really clear that this is not a case about DUI. This is a case about some stuck-up government employee that has the right to pull people over who was just experiencing a little bit of road rage and decided to pull this guy over 
and, and try and accuse him of driving under the influence when he wasn't. And so they, they're grasping at straws and saying, oh, caffeine. Mark, tell us about this story. You're right. This is a really bizarre story, Reed. In August of uh, 2015, Joseph Schwab was driving home from work in Solano County up in the Silicon Valley when he was pulled over by an agent from the California Department of Alcohol Beverage Control. You know, that's known as the ABC here in California. Right. Um, Unmarked agent was driving, car, right? She was driving an unmarked car, and the right. agent said that Schwab had cut her off and was driving erratically. So here we are about 18 months later, and he was preparing to go to trial like next week on a DUI charge. And the only evidence the DA had uh, provided of any intoxication in his blood level was caffeine. And uh, so here's what's really weird, though. The charges weren't brought until June of 2016, about 10 months after the arrest. Um, what happened was police walked into his place of work and arrested him because he didn't show up for his first court appearance. And a warrant had been issued for his arrest because he didn't show up. Um, Isn't he a lawyer? Took pla- no, no, no. He's not a lawyer. He's a glazier or something. He was oh, in the okay. union so up there. He should have yeah. shown up to his court date. you got to show up. No, no. He, well, let, me, let me finish. You know, he gets arrested. And this, takes, this takes place at his place of business in front of all of his coworkers. You know, he claims his reputation right. was damaged as a result. It turns out that the notice to appear in court was sent to his address from the six years ago, even though he gave his current address to that agent, the ABC agent. Oh, my and God. And has his current address. So they send this yeah. off to some wrong address. But, but oh my God. What's, what's really going on here is that the ABC agent got the charges instituted by the police, and then somebody right. at the DA office, DA's office was asleep at the switch, right, and didn't dismiss the case when the tox report came back negative. That's, I, I think that's what happened. Didn't, the, didn't this DA say that the, the basis of the DUI charge was not caffeine? Well, that's what she said. But here's the whole here, Here's the whole story. First of all, at the scene, this guy's 36 years old, Schwab. He takes a breathalyzer test, which shows 0.00 of blood alcohol. And notwithstanding that, he was booked into the county jail and he had his blood drawn. He was okay to do that because he knows he hadn't been drinking. Uh, but the toxicology report comes back negative. No, none of the typical drugs, cocaine, opiates, THC, methamphetamine, none of them, nothing in there at all. But that didn't stop this agent. Um, they send the blood sample off to, for a second test in some laboratory in Pennsylvania where the only positive result was for caffeine, which I'm sure if you tested about 99% of all the drivers on the road, they'd have caffeine running through the course it's of their It's not veins. a charge. You can't, be, you, can't be, you can't be accused or you can't be convicted of driving under the influence based on caffeine in California. Right. It's not a drug. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not a prescribed drug. It has to be, some, it well, has, it has to be something that impairs your ability to drive, and caffeine yeah. doesn't well, do that. In fact, it might help. Well, the, the California Vehicle Code, they define a drug as any substance besides alcohol that could affect a person in a manner that would impair to an appreciable degree exactly. his or her exactly. ability to drive normally. That's the definition. Right. So, exactly. And, and exactly. And caffeine has the exact opposite effect. Right. <laughs> I think how many times, how many people haven't pulled over for a cup of coffee when they were feeling drowsy behind the wheel in order to sharpen their senses while operating a vehicle as opposed to diminish, right? Guilty. I've done it a million times. Yeah. So, yeah, Reed, you're confessing right here. You might get an indictment now. They might right. show up at the office and haul you off. That's right. I admit it. I would like to represent that guy in a case against, especially with this new thing that you just told me, Mark, 
about sending it to the wrong address. That seems intentional to me. Maybe not sleeping at the wheel. No, and you can't. There's no negligent. lawsuit. There's no civil lawsuit here. There's no civil lawsuit here because oh, you have to man. show, first of all, governmental immunity in these situations and prosecutorial immunity in these situations is really broad. The, the sending to the wrong address just looks like negligence, and that's never going to get you past the immunity. To, to show the immunity, you have to show like a personal animus. You have to show like a bias and an intentional disregard of contrary evidence because of some feeling of actual ill will. It's not like even the malice go. standard. It's not even like the malice standard by uh, from uh, from like for that's we we know from like say defamation or something like that. I mean, it has to mm-hmm. actually be like an intentional ill will to harm. And under these circumstances, something might lie against the ABC agent, right? But exactly. she's going to say, well, all I did was make the complaint. What they did with it afterwards, I had nothing to do with, right? And and she then the over. prosecutor, the pro- the prosecutor on the other hand is now going to have prosecutorial immunity, saying, well, as soon as I found out the tox report, we never intended to take this case to trial, and I didn't know anything about this guy, and I had no personal animus or or ill will towards him whatsoever. So any type of civil action for deprivation of civil rights or uh, malicious prosecution or false imprisonment or anything like that—that's going to be a very—that's going to be a real uphill battle. Yeah, but Robert, here's what's weird though. Wait, hold on, hold on. Here's what's weird that when the, the her name was Sharon Henry, she's the DA. When she was questioned about this, how can you take a case for driving under the influence of caffeine? She goes, "Well, we're still investigating it, and we're not, that's not why we're prosecuting him." But she mm-hmm. never she didn't dismiss the case. So the lawyer named Stacy Barrett, she had to go file a motion to dismiss, and it was heard yesterday, and she won, and the case was dismissed. So this guy, oh. he's gone through getting arrested in front of his coworkers, having to hire a lawyer. Uh, get booked in jail and, you know, go through all this whole mess because some agent abused her power. I mean, yeah. have you ever heard of an ABC agent pulling over anybody? I never have. <laughs> That's I a mean, new one right. on me, man. That really is. Yeah. Aren't, those the, aren't those the people who go and hang around the bar and try to see if they're serving, uh, you know, people who aren't 21? I mean, isn't that what they do? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's what they do. They, they regulate. They hang, they lurk. They hang around the parking lot of the liquor store to see if you know anybody goes in and doesn't get carded when they buy a six pack if they look under twenty five. And that's well, basically it, their job. Uh, they don't do a tobacco. I don't know. I thought they did alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. I thought it was all all three of those things. No, no, this but is alcohol look, beverage I, control. Yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah, ABC. you know, I I I didn't know that they can pull people over, but to me, it seems that. You could probably – I would think you can get around any kind of demur or motion to dismiss because it's a tribal issue of fact and see if a jury would conclude that this woman pulled this guy over because she was pissed at him because he cut her off. And But for pulling him over, he wouldn't have been arrested later. None of this would have happened. He would have been embarrassed. Yeah. You know, I, I would be interested in looking that up, and if there's mm-hmm. a – there's a case there. We should call his lawyer and, and find out if, if, he, if he wants to bring it or if he wants some help because I would love to take that woman's head off. Um, all right. I think we are out of time. Another great show. Uh, thank you for listening. This is Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio, and we will hope to see you next week. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.